Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. So today is a very special day for a number of reasons, uh, but uh, a lot of you probably knew from the, the last few weeks have been announcing that um, we're going to have a special guest today, and he's here with us. Uh, but today is the 100th episode of Perkins Platform. And so started this uh, broadcast uh, back in 2012, believe it or not. Um, it started out as a uh, just an experiment, and uh, it was a monthly broadcast. That's the reason it took so many years to get up to um, 100. But we we started out as a monthly broadcast, and people kept writing and calling and saying uh, more and longer. And and so we started with the more, and we've, um, for the, but the last few months, we started doing weekly broadcasts, and I've had some really dynamic guests. Uh, and uh, we try to keep it at right at about 30 minutes. But tonight we have a special, special guest with us, uh, the former uh, state representative from Louisiana and um, the former mayor of New Orleans from a very long line of uh, public servants and politicians in the state of Louisiana. We have with us today uh, Mr. Mitch Landrew. Welcome, Mitch. Thank you, Dr. Perkins. It's great to it's great to be with you. Don't forget, I was lieutenant governor for a little bit too. Oh, that's right. I, I did. I did forget. That. Everybody My... forgets a lieutenant governor. They, they, they <laughs> I know the right? story. Jimmy Jimmy Fitzmarsh used to tell the story that he'd wake up in the morning and call Governor Edwards and say, "Governor, how you feeling today?" And he says, "Jimmy, I'm fine." He goes, "Call me tomorrow." <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it was a great that's job. Great. I really I really enjoyed. It. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's and and um, you know, I've been asking. We have some mutual acquaintances, and I uh, I've been asking people. Uh, so, when is Mitch going to run for governor? When is that going to happen? So, I'm not going <laughs> to let you off the hook. I'm I'm going to press no, you on that. I, 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 <laughs> I tell people you can ask me. You can ask me whatever you want as long as you don't mind hearing the answer. I mean. It's- <laughs> <laughs> It's great to yeah. be with you, Dr. Perkins. I really well, uh, appreciate it. And I was I well, was teasing you off the air a little bit about you being a graduate of of, of Grambling, you know, which is yeah. one of the great universities in America. Sure. The great sure. Eddie Robinson was there, and my good friend Dr. Rick Gallo is president of the university, you know. So I, I congratulate you. Um, yeah, well, for that thank as well. you. Thank you and so yeah, much. We had... don't know this. Maybe don't know. She got a master's in public health from Yale. University yeah. of Medicine and public health is all the rage now because people forgot about it for a long time. So for I'm glad a long that you time. Anchor and you're thinking about yes. that. Yes, yes, well, absolutely. Well, much, much to our chagrin, and we need it. We need to 
we could talk about that a little bit more today, but it's really important that we have a strong public health infrastructure so, you know, people can get healthy and, no, uh, and stay prepared, you know, for bad absolutely. things that are coming our way. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had a number of people who have who have uh, uh, written in and just excited about um, hearing from you tonight. And so I'm humbled and honored to have you here tonight. Um, and I know well, you. that you have a there's so much that um, we're going to talk about, you know, um, this, this podcast actually started because I used to always come around a group of my colleagues and I would say, I met somebody at a conference or you never believe who I saw today uh, in New York. And they'd say who, and I'd tell them and I'd say, and, or who I met on the airplane. And I'd say, we had an amazing conversation, and I would tell them about the conversation. And after about 20 of these, you'll never guess who I met, um, uh, descriptions, one of my friends uh, from the neighborhood said, you know, you really ought to have a radio show or something uh, where you just talk to people because you have these amazing conversations. And so that's what really has been the success of what um, became Perkins Platform was just having conversations with people uh, from uh, very different walks of life and, and perspectives. And, and I'm just excited to have you here. Um, and, and we have, uh, for those of you who are just joining and may have joined uh, late, we have uh, Mitch Landrew, who is the former lieutenant governor from the state of Louisiana and state representative, but also uh, probably most well-known nationally uh, for serving as the 61st mayor of New Orleans. So he was the mayor during the BP oil spill. And, um, uh, well, I should say while while the city was recovering from Hurricane Katrina and the BP oil spill, um, but um, also is uh, recognized as uh, uh, one of the nation's great comeback mayors in terms of his leadership in bringing New Orleans back. Um, And so was named public official of the year and all kinds of accolades. Um, but I, I, I want to start by just saying that uh, for those of you who are interested in, in a really great read that goes between analysis of, of racial politics and um, biography and autobiography, um, the, Mitch's book, In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History, is an amazing read, and I just want to congratulate you also for that. Um, it you were incredibly transparent and and honest and open in your description of your reflection, and I, that was just an amazing um, uh, read for me. And I rec- strongly recommend it to those of you who'd like to know more about. Um, of leadership, it, it to me uh, really it was one of those uh, areas where it made me understand, if never before, I understood why you received the Profile and Courage Award, uh, because your life was kind of ordered in that way. Um, and so I, I do want to, I want to start by there's, there are a few things in the book that I do want to talk to you about and and kind of get you to uh, 
could reflect a little bit more, but you, you talked about your childhood and that your dad was actually also the mayor of New Orleans. And, and so let's start there. I know you, you had a lot to say in the book, but um, how, how much do you think that influenced you in, in your pathway in the public, uh, the public sector? Yeah, well, first of all, Dr. Perkins, thanks for having me, and, and congratulations on your 100th um, podcast. Uh, and I'm, I'm really pleased to be with you, and I'm, I'm actually humbled that people remember. <laughs> when you get out of office, people tend to forget, you know, but I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, it's an interesting question, but I actually would, would say this. It wasn't just my father's time as mayor that influenced me, although that was a very mm-hmm. important time. Mm-hmm. I was a, I'm, one of nine, I'm one of nine children. My mom and dad had nine kids in 11 years. Uh, I was talking to my mom about this last last night, and I was like, man, that's incredible. How did you do that? You know, we came from a big Catholic family. At the time, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, which is in Broadmoor, uh, New Orleans, we grew up in the 13th Ward, there were big families all over the place. Next door to us, they had eight boys. Across Around the corner, they had 10. The Hennessy's around the corner, they had 14. The Ossetians, the Shires had eight. I mean, we were all... Michael Roussel and Andrew Plastis lived right down the street from me. We had a great neighborhood. We all grew up in the street. And, uh, you know, playing football and basketball. Our backyard had an open – we had an open yard, so our neighborhood was the neighborhood basketball uh, court. Mm-hmm. And that informed how my father, my mother and father raised us and how they were in their life informed everything that I became. I was only 10 when my dad became the mayor. And I, I was very interested. I was an outgoing kid. Um, for a whole bunch of different reasons. I, I like meeting people. I liked hanging around with my dad when he was running around the city on Saturday mornings. He would get up um, after having worked, you know, a gargantuan number of hours. And every Saturday and Sunday, he would just drive the city all day. He would drive mm-hmm. from neighborhood to neighborhood, talking to people, seeing people, understanding people. And I always dove in the back of the car with him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you pick up stuff. When you're a little kid, nobody knows you're there. You're sitting there listening. You learn a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> about people. Mm-hmm. You learn, Absolutely. You, you know this, you know who's real and who's not real. I remember right. saying stuff to my dad, like, you know, that guy you were just talking to, he didn't really like you. And my father said, what are you talking about? I said, man, dad, I'm just telling you. Did you see, you know, stuff like that. And the yeah. people who, who you, didn't, you didn't expect to meet, then, you, then you, just, you just learned about what the street felt like and what people felt like and real people. And um, my father's life before he became mayor was as critical to me um, as when he was the mayor. So, you know, I talk about this in the book, and it's really about how in the world are we going to fix this challenge that we have with mm-hmm. race. But my dad, who grew up on Adams Street, right, right across the street from a cemetery in a house that mm-hmm. was, I think it's probably 18 feet wide and about 60 feet deep. His mm-hmm. mama had a third-grade education. His daddy worked for, for uh, what was then NOPSI, which was public service. He, was a, he had an eighth-grade education. And uh, my dad got, him, got himself into Jesuit. Um, they, in the two nickels are up together. Um, and mm-hmm. when he came out of Jesuit, he was a good baseball player. That year, they actually won in 1946 and 48. They won the World Series. They were wow. Really and, he, wow. And, and he wanted to go on to be a, a minor league and a, and a major league player, but he, he went to Loyola, threw his shoulder out, and it just turns out that he decided to go to law school. And as fate would have it, and this is just God's working hand, he met Norman Francis the first day he was in law school. Mm. And Norman Francis became his one of his best friends in the world and informed his life, both of them together. If you can think about this, Moon Landrew, Norman Francis, Pascal Caligaro, who was the chief justice <laughs> of the Supreme Court. Norman sure. was the head of Xavier, and Moon was the mayor. They were all in school together, and they all wow. got to be friends. 
Wow. And that, that interpersonal relationship with Norman, um, and Norman eventually married Blanche, uh, and Moon married Verna, and they all had kids together. And so all of them and all of us grew up together. And that, that relationship and uh, my father's involvement in the legislature in 1960. So think about this. He's 29 years old. His wife has, uh, uh, is pregnant with me, mm-hmm. his fifth, mm-hmm. child, fifth child. Four of them are at home. He gets to the legislature. He doesn't have two nickels to rub together. He doesn't know anybody. And mm-hmm. he voted against Jimmy Davis's segregation package. So for people to get their head right about this, this is when George Wallace, Bull Connor, That's Willie right. Rainey, Leander Perez, the, all those That's guys right. were big shots, yeah. big mouths, big sticks, yes. you know, big everything. And yep. this little boy goes up there, votes against him. And that night they pinned him against the wall in an uh, elevator in his hotel and told him that he was done. And, uh, and, you know, that's kind of how it started, and my mother was pregnant with me. So, you know, when people ask me about, well, where did this come from, I can't remember a time in my life when our lives were not in some fashion, mm-hmm. publicly and or privately, personally and or professionally involved in the struggle mm-hmm. of, of building this country and the South the way that we always promised it should be but have never gotten to yet. And so sure. that's how I kind of grew up, you know. My mom and dad were like, this is real simple be fair to people, mm-hmm. and be honest. That mm-hmm. was it. That was pretty much all their rules. And listen, you know this is true. I don't know if you grew up in the street, but I grew up in the street. We were playing mm-hmm. football, right? And yeah. every night when somebody was going to catch an elbow or somebody yeah. who was going to hit somebody else and two kids were going to get after. And we That's lived right. in the first mixed neighborhood in the city. So look, normally what happens is if, you, if a kid gets in a fight with another kid, the parent takes the son's side, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in, my, mm-hmm. in, my house, in my house, that did not happen. <laughs> and so, like, if I got in an argument with Michael Roussel, who was a little kid that came from down the street, whose daddy wanted was Norwood Roussel, who was one of the first deans at Loyola, African-American deans, or Ann DuPlessis, <laughs> my father would sit down and say, well, y'all tell me what happened. And my mom would right. too. And if, and, and if th- there was no line coming out of my mouth, because if I was wrong, I was getting it. Right, right. There wasn't well, any about, and, 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 and I was like, well, wait a minute. And they're like, listen, son. You are right. son, but it's about being fair and it's about being that's honest. Right. And that's it, right. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. And if you're right, you're right. right. And that's just the way it's going to be. We were kind of raised like that, you know. Right. Well, you know, that sounds just like my household. Um, you may not know this, but I'm born and raised in Alabama, so I know a lot of what you're talking about. Um, uh, left high school out of Alabama, and I always tell people out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh, because I left uh, Alabama and came to Louisiana for college, so you know it was it it was uh, quite the experience to go from Alabama to Louisiana. But um, but where you in know, Alabama? Where in Alabama? Uh, yeah, Muscle you? Shoals, Muscle Shoals, oh, wow. Northern Alabama. Yeah, I'm sure you know about Muscle Shoals. Um, I always tell people it's famous and infamous because it's famous because it was the birthplace of Helen Keller. Uh, but it's infamous because during my childhood, it was one of the national headquarters for the Ku Klux Klan. So, um, yeah, you, you know, kind of an interesting place to grow up. Um, but what I I, um, I remember um, you saying, and anyone who's ever been to New Orleans knows that uh, the neighborhoods are, are you know, relatively close. You know, you, you go from one place to another um, where you have, in some cases, um, working class neighborhoods that go into very affluent neighborhoods in just a matter of two minutes, if that, mm-hmm. um, from one place yeah. to the next. 
but you even mentioned this in the book about um, your neighborhood being integrated, but that it just really didn't take far for you to be in a place where there were, you had um, friends that maybe they didn't go to school with you, but you, you all played together. Um, and, and so how did that also influence you? Um, uh, because, you know, I well, have this, yeah, go ahead. I, let me just, let me say, let me, uh, I, I talked about, so Brian Stevenson, who I think is really one of the great guiding lights in America on, on justice and race. He talks about the need for us to be in proximity to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what, he, what he means by that is that if you're close to another human being and you know them and you see them and you talk to them, it's really hard for you if you're a halfway decent person to not see their humanity. All right? Mm-hmm. And so if you live with other people who are different from you, let's say a white kid lives with a black kid, and they're hanging out in the street. They're on the corner. They're going to ride bikes. You know, we would ride bikes there on Claiborne Avenue. We would go to uh, to Audubon Park. At the time, the, the, the zoo wasn't as big as it was, so there was really a monkey hill. Mm-hmm. The kids mm-hmm. who remember mm-hmm. this, we would be mm-hmm. – and, and by the way, back in the day, my mother – and this happened to you too. You caught the switch. My mother would say, yeah, y'all can go ride bikes, but y'all better be home before dark. And if you're not, you know, there's going to be hell to pay. Now, sure. she would kind of look at you crooked, but you have to go get the switch. And they would – but we, we, were, we were rat in the streets. And, you know, so if you're running around the city with another kid that, that's, a, that's a kid of color, right, he's your friend. You don't, know, you don't even know. You're not even thinking about as, when you're a kid about race and what somebody makes you think about it. And you're out there playing and you're having a good time. And that's what your experience is with. So you play, you, you're fishing. You, you, you maybe go try to find some uh, golf balls in the lagoon, you know, at City Park. You ride your bike all over the place. You play basketball. You play baseball. You're doing all that stuff. So then all of a sudden, you leave your neighborhood, all right, and you go with the other friends who are all white, maybe in the mm-hmm. high school that you go to. Mm-hmm. And you hear those people saying stupid stuff, like black people are lazy, black mm-hmm. people don't work hard, black people don't like God, black people or whatever, black, black, black. And you go to yourself, not I'm ticked off about that, although it's aggravating, but you go, well, that's not my personal experience. Right. My right. experience is that the people that I'm with, Norman Francis, Michael, Timmy, Kathy, David, you know, all of them, they're better looking, they're smarter, they're faster. So I'm thinking to myself, well, something's wrong. So, I'm, you know, when right. you're a kid, your mind starts to go, this doesn't, make, this doesn't make any sense to me because what these people are saying is not consistent with my experience. And so then right. there's got to be another reason for it. So then you start digging back. So it wasn't until I got older, and when I wrote the book, I write about what um, my first kind of experience as a baby that was in second or third grade i think and what had happened was i went to a school called saint matthias which is a catholic school it was six blocks from my house and my mom and dad by the way still live in the house that i was born in on priest street and general Persian. and mm-hmm. we used to walk down with all of us to saint matthias andrew plessis who was a state senator and a good friend of mine who was african-american lived three doors away from me her daddy was a taxi cab driver and used to go to wilson elementary school which was a public school that's where the black kids went and then the mm-hmm. white kids went to St. Matthias until the schools were integrated. And, and that happened in, when I was in second grade. And uh, that school, just to tell you how fast it happened, when my older sister Mary, who's the United States senator, who was four years older than me, when she went to the school, it was all white. The first African-American kid came um, when I was in second grade. By the time my youngest brother, Maurice, my baby of nine, was in, mm-hmm. was in eighth grade, that school was 100, well, it was 99.99% black because he was the only white kid. Wow. So my, wow. my little brother, Maurice, 
because my parents wouldn't pull us out of the school. We, would, we stayed in the school. We stayed in the neighborhood. We were committed to it because that's where we were from. That was our house, and everybody there was our friends. And we didn't, like, move out of the neighborhood. But what happened was when I was in second grade, the first young African-American boy came into our class. His name was Keith Green. And, and he, lived, he lived on Galvez and uh, in General Persian. And when that happened, a lot of my friends who were in second grade, my little girlfriend that I was sweet on, did not come back to school. And I said, I don't, where'd Margaret go? And they said, her daddy, but her daddy wouldn't let her go to school, someone said, when they went to Holy Name. And I thought, and I didn't understand that. I was like, well, wait, I, why? Like, I don't, what, explain, I don't understand. Right. That was my right. first introduction to something's not right. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong. And I'd be, well, I don't understand. Keith's great, man. Keith's fantastic. What's the problem? And that's kind of when, you know, you start to think about over your life, when did your conscience start getting pricked about stuff like that? And then throughout time, and I write a lot about it in the book, when I was in eighth grade, a Jesuit, I had my life threatened by a woman who was mad at my daddy because that's he, right. he, as per his campaign promise, said, you know, the city's majority or it's getting close to being majority African-American and African-Americans should be in the seats of power. And that's what he did. And it upset a lot of people. And, you know, they took it out on us. And so you have things like that come into your head. And what you do is you tend to kind of take all of that stuff in and listen to what people who are hateful are saying to you and compare it to your own personal experience. And your personal experience oftentimes is the exact opposite. And I knew from hanging out with my daddy because I would go to churches on Sunday with my dad. I went, mm-hmm. I went to, to uh, oh, what's the name of the church? It was at Catholic Church. It's closed now. It was on uh, 2nd Street and Liberty. I'm going to remember it in a second. But I remember every experience that I had with African Americans, every one, mm-hmm. was enriching. It was fantastic. They, were, they almost to a person indicated a great sense of faith, a great sense of patriotism, a great sense of family, a great sense of real wisdom and intellect. That was my experience. So when I was at school with all white people, which started feeling weird to me, I would be like, I'm living in two worlds, and this is just not – this doesn't feel good. Right. You know right. what I'm saying? And so yeah, I had to absolutely. process that, and that stuff informed the way when I went to law school and then went to the legislature and became lieutenant governor. pretty much formed how I decided to use the power that was given to me by people who elected me. Um, right. And I'm not, I would not have been in politics. I could not have stayed in politics. I wouldn't have succeeded in politics without the incredible support of the African-American community and, and, you know, white people of good conscience. And so that's kind yeah. of where I am, and that's who I, that's, that's who I am. Just, yes. You know, and, and, and I want to fight for it. Yes, yes. And, you know, I always thought, and what you, what you just said uh, actually supports what I was thinking about um, with integrated settings, that in it, when, if, if we integrate, the, it, it takes care of itself about, uh, people's misconceptions about others of different races, because for the very reason you illuminated around experience, and I think that's what makes uh, a, a number of people afraid of that experience, where they they're not for integration because they don't want uh, the the races to be together, um, and and that is that's part of the issue. Um, you you actually taught me something in in the book where all these years um, 
I thought neutral ground in New Orleans referred to a place where your where your car wouldn't get flooded. <laughs> that's what I. I, I <laughs> well, that's true. Well, that's, yeah, that, it is, is, that true. is true. Right, that is, right. That is true. But but um, so but you you went on to explain how it got its name. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so it's just it it was it was the space in between. You know, yeah. and and you hear this thing if you listen to black folks talk. And you know white people don't they, they don't listen with good ears, but but you always hear you always hear uh, so I love Russell Honore, my general, you know who said mm-hmm. I yes. you know when it gets hot poor people get hotter and when it gets cold poor people get colder, <laughs> and what yeah, he was yeah. saying and every person in America understands what I'm about to say, is 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 the poor people, put, put, when I say poor here black in the south it's not necessarily true but it's it's very true, um, that somebody lives across the tracks. Somebody lives across the bridge. Somebody lives across the river. Somebody lives across the lake. Um, you can see this in, in uh, every way in America. And, you know, it, it, has, it has historically always been true. And so it's not easy to cross the tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're having this conversation in the country right now about the president's infrastructure plan. If they can view this from an equitable lens, and we're talking about the highway system that cut through primarily mm-hmm. African-American neighborhoods mm-hmm. and displaced people mm-hmm. so, so many years ago. So somebody is always on the other side of the tracks. And, and listen, as I've traveled around the South in the last two years, which I've been spending a lot of time doing, just talking to people, white people, black people, et cetera, et cetera, it is not unusual to hear a white person say, you know, when you say, well, where do, the, you, know, do you have any African-American neighbors and or friends? Say, oh, yeah. So well, where do they live? Oh, they live across the tracks. Mm-hmm. They live across the lake. Mm-hmm. And we have yet mm-hmm. to... We have yet to completely think through why that divide exists. I happen to think, based on my 30 years of serving and listening and hearing, I consider myself to be a politician or I have a degree in political science and a law degree, um, is that the country was designed this way, either through Mm -hmm. malignant intent in some instances, Mm -hmm. sometimes through Mm -hmm. benign neglect, sometimes through just thoughtlessness, sometimes with the – with the expectation that we're not supposed to be together, so let's not design it so that we will be together. And so we, we are following form. And I think that we have to, as, as we were talking about earlier, about biases that are created within us without us even knowing about it. So if a white kid's hanging around all white kids and all they hear is what their parents told them and what their parents told them they heard from TV and what they heard was black people are dangerous – Right. Black people don't like to work hard. Black people are not smart. Black people can't be quarterbacks. Black people can't be astronauts. Black people can't be doctors. You know, black people don't like right. chemistry. You're a professor right. of chemistry, right? right? You know, black people, they, you know, et cetera, you know all the, all the tropes. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you get in your mind when you're walking down the street. If there's a black guy walking down the street, you walk to the other side because mm-hmm. you think black is dangerous. I can tell you this, that even today, on January 6th, those folks that didn't get ready for the insurrection, one of the reasons they didn't is because they knew that the people that were going to be meeting were white, and it didn't mm-hmm. register that that was danger. Mm-hmm. Had it been – and listen, a senator said this. Ron Johnson said it. But had it been a group of Black Lives Matter, they would have been more ready because that's called implicit bias. And I think a yes. lot of white people, yes. they really push back against these kind of ideas because it's hard I'm, – listen, I'm not a sociologist or a psychiatrist, but – uh, I, I do think, um, and you know, I hope there's anybody out there that's smarter than me, and I'm sure there are many about this, that I think sometimes it's really hard for us as human beings to look at terrible things and to acknowledge them because it's painful to reflect on the possibility that we had something to do 
with somebody that we might have known that did that. You know what I mean? Just something like that. And I think that on the first piece that we were talking about, one of the problems that we have is narrative. Who gets to tell the stories about what happened? And, And this is really what taking down the monuments was about. It's really about a much deeper thing than just whether or not you had stone and metal with a guy named Robert E. Lee standing on top of it. Those monuments were put up to create a narrative, to -hmm. tell a story. And that story Mm -hmm. was a lie. Mm -hmm. Um, And the story was this guy was a great guy, that he fought for justice and freedom. And, you know, had had we won the war, we mean the Confederates, life would be better. And by the way, he represents all of the history of the South. Well, first of all, there's nothing true about anything that I just said. First of all, that guy... Who, who led that thing, led an insurrection against the United States of America. Right. He wasn't fighting for a just cause. He was, fighting, he was fighting to destroy our country, which means he wasn't a patriot. Right. It means he was a traitor. And That's he wasn't right. fighting for the economy. He was fighting to make sure that human beings were enslaved, beaten, raped, tortured, separated from their families, decimated, disemboweled, and hung. That's what that guy was. And so, That's you, right. so but, the people, but the people who were in power... After the war, after Reconstruction, so we had the war for people that are kind of not remembering most of this, 1861 to 1865. Then we went through a period of Reconstruction, which when we had the first African-American governor, who was Oscar Dunn, by the way, not PBS Pinchback. PBS Mm -hmm. Pinchback came right after Oscar Dunn. They were both lieutenant governors. They both acceded to the governorship because the same governor was out of of commission. Um, And we had a number of different congressmen and state senators who were African-American from the South. United States Senators. And then all of a sudden, when they had the Great Compromise and the federal troops left the South, all right, nobody had any protection. And the people who were in power, which was mostly the white planters and all of those folks, put their, you know, guns together, put their nooses together and started terrorizing the country. And that's when we had the black codes. And it was around that time that the daughters of the Confederacy, who were the wives and the mothers of many of the young men who were killed fighting on behalf of the Confederacy, um, they decided that they had to send a message that, you know, it was terrible that we lost um, because a great cause was lost. And then right. these monuments started going up. And from 1890 right. to about, I don't know, I want to say 1960, and That's there may right. have been a couple after that, those monuments were put up to send a message essentially to black people, which is, you know, mm-hmm. the United States might have won the war, but you're still living down here and we're still in control. Sure, and so sure. I, when I, when I, that, that's kind of that story. But listen, if you would have told a different story, if you, would have, if you would have talked really about Andre Calouet, who was a, one of the first African-American generals of, um, the, in the Confederacy, but he fought for the United States, and he won. And you talked about Oscar Dunn, and you talked about PBS Pinchback, and you reminded him about the free people of color who were doctors and lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. If you talked about the Colfax riots, if you talked about the Battle of the Liberty Place, if you talked about the lynchings and start telling the story so that we could, we could – um, what what's the right word? Just get this out of our system and acknowledge yes. what we did, apologize yes. for it, and then make recompense so that we can have accountability and then reconciliation. We're being yes. a far different place oh, absolutely. than we are right now. Absolutely. And I, and I love the way you, you know, are, are speaking about this in a no-holds-barred kind of way. Uh, it is what it is. And, and I, was, I have to tell you, I was just so confused when I learned things like um, that, that even the names of some of our nation's um, uh, uh, military bases, and, and even that there was at one point until last year 
a statue of Robert E. Lee in the U.S. Capitol. I, that just, yeah, how about that? Huh? That, that just, I don't, I, I, it's hard to even understand that. Well, but, except, but Brian, except, let's, think, let's think about this, though. Think about this for a minute. If, if from an intellectual point of view, you are 100% right, and from a philosophical point of view, you're 100% right. But if you don't know, if you don't know any black people, if you're a white guy and you never met a black guy, all right, then you can only think about it intellectually. But if, if you and me are friends, or better yet, me and Wynton Marcellus, because Wynton and I grew up together, and we're hanging out one day, and Wynton says to me, hey, man, you're a big shot. You're a mayor. You got power. You ought to take those monuments down. And I look at him and go, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? And he says, well, have you ever – only a friend can tell a friend this. That's right. Have you ever, have you ever thought about it? And I said, actually, no, I walk by him every day. And by the way, I'm not the only one. Lots of people did, and African-Americans did too. But Wenton said to me, my friend, and he couldn't have said this if he wasn't my friend. He kind of smacked me in the head. And he said, well, you know, why don't you think about it from my perspective? Now, I, in order to be able to do that, I kind of knew, know him, and then to put myself in his shoes, and then to have empathy, and then to start thinking about what that monument looks, to, looks like to a young black boy that's maybe gone to John F. Kennedy High School in the morning, all right, walking past the Beauregard statue. And if he's gone to high school, he's gone to a school called John F. Kennedy. He's thinking about becoming a great jazz musician. This is Terrence Blanchard. And, but he's got to walk by that monument every day. And he's thinking to himself, man, that guy's not friendly. He doesn't want me to succeed. He's not expecting me to do better. He's telling me I can't, right? Now, if I don't know right, Terrence, right. I can't feel that. So, so being in proximity to people, for me, this is one of just the great blessings of my life. And that's why it's important for us to put ourselves in each other's shoes. And this thing cuts a bunch of different ways. It's going to be hard for us because we're terrible. This is just my opinion about us. Talk about myself too. I think we're terrible at talking about race. We don't know how to do it and because we haven't really tried to do it well. We tried to yell at each other about it, scream at each other about it, have some oppositional pieces. But we haven't really practiced the art of reconciliation the way that Germany or South Africa – really thought through and decided that they wanted to get to the other side of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you there? Right. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> yes, was, yes, yes. That was the end yes, of my yes. sentence. I'm sorry. Yes, yes. No, you, you, it, went, it went completely dead. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And you know what I what I uh, another thing that I really uh, admired I think is connected to this um, and I think it speaks volumes about you I don't want to give it away to everyone though we're we're not going to talk about the whole book because I want people to go out and get it and read it um, no, because it's a it's a it's a really powerful um, book but I um, so you you know you talked about. Um, a moment in your life um, where uh, you visited Auschwitz. And this actually moved me, and I just was like, wow. Um, and I could tell uh, that you, 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 know, you, you have great and big influences in your life, and you have you know, a call on your life. And, and one of the things that you said in the book, and I'm sure this will resonate with a lot of people, that um, when you visited Auschwitz, um, that you said, 
Um, you couldn't, you know, you basically couldn't believe how humans could do this to other humans. But here's what moved me when you said that day I prayed that if I were ever tested by the power of evil, I would have the courage to stand for what was right. And so that, that just, that moved me because I thought, um, just even as a young man, and I think you were in college at that time, but to really, yeah. Uh, to recognize that uh, there was that there might be a time, but that you wanted to kind of summon the strength to be able to stand, and because a lot of times what people don't realize is what it takes to stand in those moments. Is that it's not just easy to say why you know because a lot of people say why don't you just do X Y and Z? <laughs> that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost, yeah. right? Well, listen, um, first of all, thank you for, for rec- remembering that part of the book. And it's so funny because, you know, this thing where you say God's not finished with you yet. Um, that was a very provocative moment in my life. And remember, I was, I was about – I was at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. in school. I was a double major in political science and in theater. My, my first really love of my life was – I wanted to be in musical theater. I wanted to be a, a professional actor, and, and I really was kind of keyed on going to Broadway. Um, and so I, I, was, I was a theater major at the Harkey Theater Conservatory, but I was also a political science major, and I played mm-hmm. tennis in school, and I, I was doing a bunch of stuff. Um, I was very interested in international affairs, and I got myself um, into a group of people that traveled around the world as part of it. I did a couple of USO shows at Army, Navy, and Air Force bases, Um, And we were working with the State Department, and the State Department asked our school to put together some students um, in partnership with some students from Great Britain to go over to Poland. Now, remember, this was before the strike. This was before Poland was really kind of coming out of where they were. This was before Lech Walesa became the president um, out of the the shipyards. And when we got to Poland, um, they had armed guards, like, like from our perspective, National Guardsmen, standing on the corners with submachine guns. And it was like, man, this place is something. So I spent a month there um, teaching a course in the history of American musical theater and spent really 30 days with some of the smartest kids in the world who were from Poland. These kids spoke three and four languages. I felt stupid. I mean, I can't hardly talk English. <laughs> and these kids, were, these kids were smart, right? But they loved America. It was incredible. Um, we, we, if we go out to nightclubs at night, these kids who were Polish, they were singing American songs, and all they wanted was jeans. And they loved America, and they loved freedom. And, you know, they would, they would tell us all these stories about how they want to come to America. And that's when I first learned about how important America was to the world. These kids that were on the other side would look to us all the time. But they questioned us. They were like, yeah, but you guys, are y'all real? Is freedom really real? Is it really fair? And while I was there, I, I went to Auschwitz. Um, which for people who I'm sure most people know is where many of um, many of the people that Hitler killed um, our Jewish brothers and sisters were, were cremated. And when you walk into this space, it's really stultifying. I mean, it is the place where human beings just were emasculated um, and burned. And when you physically walk into um, a concentration camp, you can't deny it's, it's almost something happens to you where whatever was a lie in your life, you know, you have to go, you can't lie about this because some people mm. were deniers, right? That's and right. you walk into places, and, and for those who have been to a Holocaust museum, one of the things that they do 
is they have suitcases of people who were really there, who were taken from them when they got off the trains, right. or they had dentures, yep. or they have yep. limbs, or they have hair, or they have eyeglasses. So you can't shy away from the fact that these were real human beings that you could touch and feel and see. And just the horror that we as human beings allowed that to happen. And when I was there, I mean, I guess I might have been, I think I was 20. Um, and so I was, I was, you know, a fully mature, almost, my mother wouldn't say I'd never grown up, but... You know, I was a thoughtful person at that time. I was thinking, how in the world was it possible that an entire country let somebody lead them and be a part of mm -hmm. or be complicit mm -hmm. in killing six million human beings? And I remember thinking, I am never, ever going to let that happen if I have to say anything about it. And mm -hmm. I knew, though, that since so many people let it happen, that I potentially could be one of the people that maybe couldn't find the courage Mm -hmm. to do it. And so that's when I said, uh, two things happened that day. I said, gosh, if that ever happens, you know, I hope that I have the courage to do something about it. But the second thing was it reminded me a lot of, of uh, what the United States did in, to slavery. And it's hard to, sure. it's hard to compare atrocities because nothing's comparable to either one of them. But mm -hmm. when you think about what we did with slavery, and this is what really bothers me about the textbooks in America. All we do is say slavery. We don't really talk about the enslaved. We don't talk about family separation. We don't talk about kids being peeled off of their mother's breasts. We don't talk about rape. Right. We don't talk That's about right. forced labor camps. We don't talk about lynchings. We don't talk about castration. You know, we have this kind of mythical thing, like um, that came from Gone with the Wind. That you know, there were there were good, you know even a, even a guy yesterday in the state legislature said, oh, we can tell the story of slavery, good, bad, and you know, and everybody went, wait a minute, there was no good side. Or right, slavery. Right, and sometimes right. we just kind of pass through it, and we don't actually look at what it is that we did. Lots of white people will say this. Look, man, don't talk to me about that. A, it was a long time ago. B, I didn't have anything to do with it. I know anybody that had anything to do with it. And C, it doesn't have anything to do with today. Wrong on all counts for a lot of different reasons. And if you really knew when it started, from the first time that 20 people came in 1619 that were brought over here against their will, all right? And from that moment all the way through the day that slavery ended, we're talking 4 million human beings. That's a lot of damn people, okay? And if it was just one, it would be too many. But 4 million people who over a 250-year period of time were starved of humanity, starved of education, starved of everything that people could starve them from, and yet still survive. I mean, that's, that's an incredible story. That's right. um, but, that's right. but we look around and say, we say the word plantation. How about you say forced labor camp? Because that's, right. that's what it was. It was a forced right. labor camp. How about you say, you know, when, when a slave master slept with his slave, how about you say he raped her? That's right. Against her will. How about, how about when you say, you know, oh, you got to be kidding me. And, you, and not only did, you, did, did she have your child, but then you slept with her child. That was your daughter. And so That's when you right. think about that stuff, I'm not doing this to make white people feel bad. I am doing it so that people can actually say, okay, listen, we in this country made a pledge to each other. And, and the pledge was really simple. And this is what separates America from every other place in the world. And this is why we are a great nation. But we have never lived up to our promise, and we've never really fully walked the walk for everybody, sure. that we come to the table of democracy as equals. That's what we say. Okay, but when we said we the people way back when, we were talking about we the white men. We weren't mm -hmm. talking about white women. We weren't talking about African Americans. We weren't talking about – and it's taken us time to say to everybody, listen, this is what we say. We have to start doing what we say. 
And you can't make up stories about how you did something when that's not true because that's not really who we are. And so if America really wants to be the great country that we profess to want to be, if we want to ever get anywhere close to our potential, and this is what the message to, to really to white people particularly is because we are the ones who are currently in power. There is a better day. Do not be afraid about this country becoming majority minority. It's not necessary that you be afraid because, by the way, all you folks who are Irish, all the folks who are Italian, I got a lot of Italian blood in me. You know, at one point in time, you were the immigrants too. You were the ones right. who were – you were never at the bottom of the total focus because the that, descendants of the enslaved always were. But you weren't really kind of in the country club either. That's you know right. what I'm saying? You, That's you right. weren't in the master's program. So, so let's all think about what that means and think about how we lift each other up and how we're all going to be better. The more people we meet, the more people we come into proximity with, the more we lift each other up from a healthcare perspective, education, transportation, the ability to make a living, and respect for the product that comes out of our heart and soul. This country, right. we're not even close to being what we can be. And right. that's Absolutely. really the bigger message. It's one of hope. It's not one of condemnation, but we can't get to the hope side until right. we get to the acknowledgement side. I, I, I right. think that that's the message that I would tell. And every, listen, every person in America knows this who's got kids who get in a fight. You can't make your kids make up until somebody says they're sorry. That's right. It just doesn't work. That's right. You ever try right. to discipline your children and get them to make up until somebody says they're sorry? Now, right. you don't have to pay back 100% of what you took, but you've got to at least acknowledge that something was wrong so that can right. be healing because you can't, you can't have healing without acknowledgement. Right, but we still have right. people, as you, as you just mentioned, we still have people who would frame it as let's acknowledge, let's teach slavery from a perspective of the good, the bad, and the ugly, but, right, it, but without understanding there, there, there wasn't anything good um, from, from those perspectives. But I do want to tell you that um, as you were talking about Auschwitz and you mentioned the, the artifact, that you were able to see there. Uh, I, uh, in the last month or so, had the opportunity to go uh, about 15 miles outside of New Orleans, as you know, uh, the Destrehan yep. Plantation, right? Sure. Um, yep. At, at the, yep. And, and so um, it's amazing to me. I, it takes, though, I think a, a reflective person to go into a place like Auschwitz and see the artifacts, but even at Destrehan to look and, and I saw names on, on, yeah. on registers where yep. people were brought people. to that plantation, real people, real names. Of and 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 the way they describe them as cripple or or um, an infants where where you know with yellow fever they were sick but where they would have a, a six month old in a registry of slaves that came with the mothers and and so for me it it is not too far fetched because you know if we think about it there were. There were children back then that as long as they were eight or older, according to their records, they were allowed to be brought into slavery, as an example. Um, and then I think about where we say never again, and we have similar things happen where these children, although they didn't come as slaves, but they're children that are in those, those uh, camps from over uh, across the, the border, 
that we don't, mm-hmm. in some cases, they don't know where the parents are, that these are, are small children, and that we're saying that they, they are unaccompanied, uh, but now we're in the numbers of thousands. And, and mm-hmm. it just makes me wonder, when are we going to learn our lesson um, in history? Is it going to repeat itself? But we're not doing right by, by groups of people over and over again. Well, okay. That was a thank you for, for that story. And is that the first time you've been to Whitney? Uh, well, actually, not to Whitney. I went to Destrahan. Not, oh, not over to Whitney. The, I went to the, Destrahan. Yeah. But I've the, been to the Whitney. Whitney Plantation. The Whitney Plantation, for those folks who are listening that don't know, is a plantation that was uh, bought by recently a lawyer in New Orleans named John Cummings, who decided to curate it from the enslaved right. perspective. And it's a very. Um, it's a very painful but necessary experience because, you know, in, right, right now in plantations in Louisiana, people go, oh, let's go to the plantation and see the pretty flowers and the nice white columns, and let's, have a, uh, let's see if we can have a wedding reception there. And, gee, isn't it fun? Well, and unless you bring one of your African-American friends with you who basically stop and go, I don't really feel like going in there. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, if you're a white person, you go, well, why? And they go, well, that place is not like that doesn't – this is not a happy place for me. That's you know, right. because of my history. And then if you are a decent human being, you go to the person, well, tell me about your history and tell me why. When you go to the Whitney Plantation, they curate it, and they actually have, they did something amazing because there were, I think, I want to say 2,000 um, young children who were two years uh, of age or younger that passed that they didn't have any um, recognition of their births. And they actually built a graveyard and did this incredible research. And what you, what you reminded of is that human beings lived in this space. And you say never again. And, and, and the reason why the Auschwitz story is so important is because, and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to scare people in this country, but freedom isn't free. It requires right. constant vigilance. And yes, it can happen again if you let it happen again. And so the, 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 the second part of the Auschwitz story is that when I came back to Louisiana and I went to law school, because my father, my father saw me act on stage one day, and he said, son, you need something to fall back on. you got to come back home and go to law school. I'd like, thanks, Dad, for being honest. So anyway, I ran for the legislature, and would you know, not too long after I got elected to the legislature, David Duke, who was right. the leader of the Ku Klux Klan, got elected right. to the state legislature. And I'm sitting That's here right. thinking, okay, you have got to be kidding me. And, right. and the thing is, and this goes into a much deeper psych- psychological issue about whether you can be um, – that people think a racist is somebody who's yelling at the top of their lung, using pejorative language, calling you the N-word, you know, a personal interaction that's negative, as opposed to somebody who just in their heart believes with searing coldness and a calm mind that he's superior to you and will use his power to make sure that you don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. That's a different thing. That allows for systemic bias, systemic racism. It allows a guy like Hitler to say, well, listen, this is easy. I'm not going to get angry, but these people are inferior, so we're just going to kill them. You know? And so I don't want to be histrionic about this, but I am here to say that freedom requires constant vigilance. And, yeah. and you can people, – people have historically – let me say this. We've had a number of different examples throughout history. One of them happened in the United States with slavery. One of the atrocities happened in Germany. Many of them happened in South Africa. You see genocide in Armenia. You've seen this where human beings throughout history have had moments when they've done very cruel things to each other. That didn't happen by accident. And Dr. King 
in his letter from the Birmingham jail said it more clearly than anybody else. You know, the people who are really the worst are the people who are of good conscience who say nothing. That's right. And, you know, he, that's, a rep, that's, a, that's a repetition of a lot of other very wise people mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. from way back when through today. Mm-hmm. But essentially, mm-hmm. we, have to be, we have to see each other as fellow human beings who are equal. Um, and that's, that means, you know, people have good things and bad things about them. And that, yeah, we may be a little different because of our cultures, but race is a social construct that has allowed some level of hierarchy. And the person, I'll tell you this, the person who really, uh, so many people have written so well about so much of this in the last couple of years. Eddie Glau Jr. is one of them. Don Lemon just put out a great book called This is the Fire, which is based on mm-hmm. uh, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, who's another fantastic mm-hmm. writer who didn't really get as much play back in the, as, as Medgar Evers did or Dr. King or Malcolm X. Um, mm-hmm. but, but Isabel Wilkerson has written two books that I would commend to the world. One of them is The Warmth of Other Sons, where she talks about the Great yes. Migration, all That's the right. people that were here and where everybody went. In other words, the South basically has fed the nation. All the great people in the country are from the South. They went to Los yep. Angeles, Detroit, mm-hmm. Chicago. They took mm-hmm. the music, the food, the fun, and they showed everybody else how to, how to have a joyful life. So that's that book. And the next book she wrote was a book that's called Cast um, that just came out where she talks about class and race. And both of them are very instructive about what the truth is about who we are, how we got here, and also a guide to get us out of it. Because there's a better day mm-hmm. for us, I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. I've lived it. Yeah. I've, I've known it. I know it's possible. We keep getting in our, our own way but because we let hate and, and avarice and greed and fear and you know, anxiety and bias get in our way, but I'm just telling you, there's a better tomorrow. There's a better place for us. Yes. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I know there there have been. Um, I apologize to my my listeners. It's been such a great conversation with you. We we had some people call and hang up and call and hang up. Um, and oh, so, I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. No, no, it's it's on me. I I um, am completely wrapped up in the conversation, and we just continue. Uh, those who want to call back, it's six five seven three eight three one four eight one. Again, six five seven. Three eight three one four eight one. We have time for a couple of calls, um, but um, so as I promised, I I, I wasn't going to let you off the hook. You know, we we have already been close to an hour that I I promised I wouldn't take up a whole lot of your time, but I'm not going to let it off the hook that I said. You know, so um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, and then what's next for you. Uh, I I mean, it, it's it's been so bold and. And and the way you, I, I will never forget watching you on CNN when someone said, uh, had the nerve to say, well, you know, we, we're not saying, you know, don't take them down, but we need to discuss this. And you said, what's there to discuss? Take down the damn statues. <laughs> you know, it, it, was just, it was brilliant. And well, so I would love to know, so what are you doing now and what's next for you? Well, I actually, thank you for asking. I started... Uh, an organization. It's a it's a not for profit. It's called E Pluribus Unum Fund. I'm the president and a founder of it, and I have a team of people who are working with me. We've been traveling across the South for the past two years, doing extensive interviews with everybody that wants to talk to us. We've interviewed over interviewed over 800 people, and what we're trying to do is find a pathway forward for the country on the issue of race and class. Mm-hmm. So we've visited 30 different counties across 13 states. We've been to every southern state. 
Uh, we've been to Texas and we've been to Florida, both of which are historically southern states, even though they don't like to say that they are. But um, and we're trying to figure out how to uh, figure a, a pathway to reconciliation. So we have we have you can go on our website. It's called unumfund.org. And we have a report that we wrote called Divided by Design, which you can find at dividedbydesign.org, that talks about um, where we've been, what people said, what the things are that bring us together, what the things are that separate us. And, um, and we're trying to figure out how to uh, eat this elephant, which we're doing it one bite at a time. So we're trying to help change the narrative to tell our whole history in its all of its richness. We're trying to uh, teach leaders um, in different particular counties, how they build equity agendas, and then we're doing a policy research piece to give people specific policy initiatives that we think will help create equity um, and push the South into what we call the New South, um, which is the South that's the way we should have been if we would have gotten it right the first time. And so that's where I'm spending all of my time because I just think that unless we can deal with race, it's just everything we do involves race. If you scratch mm -hmm. it a little bit deep, whether you're talking about the environment, or clearly uh, public safety, when you're talking about infrastructure, we've talked about taxing and spending, you talk about housing, you talk about energy, whatever you talk about, there's a racial component that stops us from getting to common ground that helps us all. And I just think as a country, we cannot go to get forward if we don't go forward together just because it doesn't work. It's like saying a house mm -hmm. divided itself can't stand. It's self-evident. And mm -hmm. so why do we keep doing things that divide us? So let's figure out, and in order to do that, we have to see our truth. We have to acknowledge mm -hmm. where we've been so we can decide together where we're going. And I'm trying to figure out how to, how to find a pathway up that mountain that nobody's you know, found a pathway up for our country. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Absolutely. and I have a good, great team of people, and I'm going to keep working on that until uh, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And that, congratulations on that. And um, so now um, my question was, so when are you going to run for governor? <laughs> Well, I'm not giving you a political answer. I don't. I don't really know. You know, I cert no seriously. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting question because I've obviously thought about it. I mean, I think that mm -hmm. I could have been the governor. I was oh, lieutenant absolutely. governor. I decided to come yep. home and run for mayor of the city of New Orleans, which you know creates real difficulty in running mm -hmm. statewide because the city is so different in many ways. Although it doesn't preclude you from doing it. Number one. Number two. I spent 30 years in elected office, and it's nice. Even though I loved my, I loved all of it, and I was grateful and blessed. Um, you know, you want to kind of go where you can do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And, you know, yeah. if an opportunity arises and and that calls to me and I think that's the right place to go, I'll do it. If not, you know, it's it's something that, that it's, it's got to fit. The timing's got to be right. The people have to want to do something dramatically different from what we're doing right now. Um, and whether it's the governorship or the Senate race or, you know, run an EPU or whatever that might be, I, I always mm -hmm. pray for the wisdom to – to not let your britches get too big and just figure out where you can be useful and helpful to people. And, you know, wherever that is, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of purge myself uh, and see if I can continue to help because I just, I love the state. I love the people. I love our country. I just think that, that with that, you know, if I would just say one thing to the people of America is there is a fantastic future for all of us and we have to quit shooting ourselves in the foot. We have to see each other mm -hmm. as fellow human beings. If we would just follow our initial creed, and honor our promise to each other to see each other as equals so that we come to the table of democracy, you know, as in, in a wonderful way. There's just not anything that we won't be able to do together, but there's not much we can do at all if we keep mm -hmm. seeing each other differently and think that some of us are better than the others. We just, that's just not going to work. 
Absolutely well stated. Well, I I have a caller on the line. I know we're almost out of time, so I'm going to just connect this caller uh, in on us. Um, we have at a 843 area code caller. Are you there? Hi, Dada Perkins. I'm here. Hi. Yes. So uh, please, with your comment or your question for uh, Mitch. Mitch, I just wanted to thank you for your conversation today. It's definitely well needed. Um, I could resonate with your comment about the tracks. Growing up in a small town, Laura, South Carolina, um, my name is Brittany Brooks. I'm an assistant principal in Jacksonville. And we would always refer to those on the other side of the tracks. Small town, <laughs> four stoplights. And I can tell you how small it is because it's just Loris Middle School, Loris High School, and Loris Elementary. And my mom and my dad grew up there. And the affluent people lived on the other side of the tracks. And we lived on the opposite side of the tracks. And um, I remember my dad saying oftentimes how my mom had to walk on the other side. of My grandmother walked on the other side of the tracks to take care of um, a family. And so just that terminology, and still when I go home, and now I'm talking to my husband and my kids about it, about what this track means, and I always mm-hmm. told my husband, I said, you know what, one day when I make it, I'm going to buy a retirement home on the other side of the track in that <laughs> neighborhood, <laughs> and I'm going to move my parents over there. But it, I mean, yeah. I really, 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 really relate to it. And in thinking about some of the things that are going on in Jacksonville, Florida right now, within our school systems, and people are rallying to change the school names. And what does it mean for those African-American students to be in those four walls learning and dreaming about the things that they want to be, but your school is named Robert e., Robert e. Lee as just like an example. So those are the conversations that we're having now in Jacksonville and people um, as early as, like, March 30th, we're rallying outside of the school district, um, you know, demanding, you know, change the name of the school. And that's just one. There are multiple names. Um, and so I appreciate your boldness. I appreciate um, the conversation that you and Dr. Perkins are having. And I, um, too, am excited um, to get your book and read it. Um, if you could offer advice to educators, um, you said that um, freedom isn't free. It actually takes a lot of vigilance. What vigilance do you think is needed right now in this present moment in our education system as it relates to the opportunity gap? Well, first of all, thank you. You're an assistant principal. Is that what you said? I am. Yeah. So you're doing it now. I mean, basically through your presence, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and through your words, you're you're testifying, you're giving testimony to what should be. And, you know, I I don't want to tell you how to present to the people that are opposed to what it is you're trying to do. But if you stand in your strength and just say to them clearly things that they would understand and relate to. You know how you just related to, uh, you know, the term across the tracks? All right, mm-hmm. you can ask, ask these white people. Say, listen, you know, when, when uh, in high schools when we win championships, you know, we put up the numbers of the championships or the pictures because we put up people that we want to emulate. We put up people mm-hmm. that we want to reflect. We put up people who we want our kids to become. Now, I want you to think about me, if you don't mind. Think about from my perspective or my son. If you're asking them to walk under the name of somebody whose mission it was to see them killed or to Mm -hmm. see them enslaved, do you think that that's encouraging to my child? And Mm -hmm. so why would you expect one thing for your children, to have something that they can emulate, but somebody that makes my kids think they're less than? Can you you appreciate how that makes me feel? And they should Mm -hmm. say, oh, wow, okay, you know what? I like you. 
and I and I and I think he's special. And yeah, I mean, why would and and by, by the way, and then you say something like, especially since there's so many wonderful people who we can name this school after that everybody could look up to. So in the monument That's speech right. that I gave, there's a little piece in the speech, and it actually came from a true story. A mother had told me this story, and it just basically says, if you were, if if you know white people, can you imagine a 12 year old girl looking up at the statue of Robert E. Lee? And if you put yourself in her shoes, do you think when she's looking up at Robert E. Lee, way up there, that she's encouraged? Do you think that she thinks she can be anything in the world? Do you think she can be president? Or do you think the message she's getting is don't try too hard, you're really less than, I don't care how cute you are, how smart you are, how fast you are, you can't really be the track star, you can't really be the chemistry teacher, you can't really be the doctor, and God forbid you ever think about being president, little girl, because no matter how good you are, you're always going to be a little black girl. Which one of the things do you think she's thinking? And if you're a parent and you, can, and you have a child, can you, can you put yourself in her shoes? If you can do that, most, even most mm-hmm. white people, I mean, I mean really, because, you know, they, they just, they're kind of confused and they don't really know the history. And somebody told them a story that wasn't true. Try right. to do it in a way that's forceful and passionate. But, you know, I, the Bible says speak truth in love. That means, right. that means to mm-hmm. speak the truth, mm-hmm. That's right. and it means to do it in love, which is not necessarily soft. It means honest Absolutely. and penetrating, but in a way where that person can come to you. Mm-hmm. So you're being asked to do something that's unfair, which is to be patient and to be open and to give them a way to get to you, right? And that's a harder – I think that really this is the other side to the African-American community, and this is, a, this is an unfair thing to ask. But in order, in order for that to be reconciliation – there has to be forgiveness. And so you got to mm-hmm. start thinking about, well, well man, now, now what is this man, what's this white boy asking me to do now? Tell me, tell me again one more time. You want me to forgive? Well, yeah, but not yet. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but you, but you got to start thinking about, well, what is forgiveness, forgiveness going to require? Does it require an apology? Does it require accountability? Does it require an acknowledgement? What's grace mean? Grace means, you know, you know at least in the theory of Christianity, you don't have to pay back okay. pound for pound, right? So okay. mm-hmm. I guess all these tough things that you have to think through and, and see if there's an open pathway to making it. I happen to think the names are easy, and this is why, why, Dr. Perkins, I got upset with those people. I'm like, look, man, if we can't even agree to take down the monuments and the statutes and change the name of Army and Air Force bases where you're asking a young black kid to walk through those gates and give his last right. measure – but you're going to that's make right. him walk through, walk under the name of a general that would have kept him enslaved. That's just wrong. And right. so, like, you know, let's get, let's, get, let's get done with the easy stuff first, and then let's now talk about curriculum, and let's talk mm. about history, and let's talk Absolutely. about opportunity, and let's get into the into – the, if all we do is take down the, the money and all that we do is change the names and we don't do the work, you know, we kind of mm. – you know, we make ourselves feel better. But we didn't get really anything done. And so I think you have to – uh, what I'm saying to you is this. You have to stay in the fight and testify in a thoughtful, passionate uh, way that gives people a way to get back to you if and when they're ready and their heart's open to do it. And that's just a really hard thing for us human beings to do. Mm-hmm. It's just hard. We're not good mm-hmm. at it. We haven't practiced it. But we have to decide that we want to get better before we do. You know, Absolutely. And then we've got to walk the walk. And, and it's going to be tough because there's a lot of passion on both sides of this, and there's a lot of anger and frustration, and it, there's a lot of fear. And, you know, you can tell people not to be afraid, but fear is an irrational thought that comes from, you know, concern and anxiety and all kinds of stuff. And they're, they're global forces that are pushing us apart. And I would just say, 
that there are a lot of white people and a lot of black people have a lot more in common than they think, and we're fighting the wrong enemy. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I Absolutely. Just, Definitely. I just, you know Absolutely. what I'm saying? Thank you. I mean, we're just... We're just fighting the wrong. We're fighting the wrong enemy, and there's common ground there, and there's greatness, and there's joy. My life has been so much more enriched because of the diverse experiences that I've had in my life, places that I've been, people that I've met, more cultures, more understanding. My life is deeper and richer and better, and that's certainly true about my relationship that I've been blessed to have, you know, in the city of New Orleans, which is majority African American. I mean, it just is. It's part of who I am, and I can't separate myself from it. And it's just. Uh, I've seen what it looks like when it's good, and it's really, really good. Mm. <laughs> thank you. I've, I've thank you. There, you know. And thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, caller from uh, Jacksonville, sure. uh, Florida, and Mitch. I know we went over. I just, um, you know, okay. we could go, we could go on and on, but I, I'm gonna uh, uh, stop us here. And this has been such an enriching and enlightening conversation. Uh, everyone listening should. Um, be encouraged and know, and I, I, you know, I haven't paid much attention to people who have received the Profile and Courage Award, um, and they got you, this one they got right. I don't know about any of the other <laughs> ones, but yours is right on the well, money. Well, they gave one to President Obama, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're in good company. Good you're company, in good right? company. That's, that's good right. Company. That's right. That's you're you're definitely, yes, yes. You are definitely in good company, and I just appreciate so much uh, that you were willing to come on and 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 celebrate um, this um, this this occasion of the hundredth episode. And I wanted somebody that would be really big, um, and I just didn't know you were going to be this big and uh, magnanimous. So uh, thank you so much again, and to the listeners. Thank you for being here. We, we have a, hundreds more to go, um, and um, we just want to say we, we appreciate everyone who has called in, who has been listening. And, Mitch, I'm going to be watching any way that I can help. Um, I, am, I am on the campus of Loyola University at uh, Loyola Law School, so your sister is not too far away. I know her. And right. um, one of my my baby sisters, Adina. Yes, she's good. that's right. That's <laughs> right. And she's a great individual. And so, anytime um, you're over, please um, uh, stop by and say hello. Got an office there. That'd, or if you're if you're in great. New York City, if you're ever in New York City, got an office there as well. Um, look forward wow. to hearing from you. You fancy? And you got more than one office. That's no, real, that's well, impre- that's impressive. No, I'm I'm I, no. <laughs> It's 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 called crazy. <laughs> That's what yeah. it's called. Not, not fancy. It's crazy. But thank you so much again, right, and um, I look forward to talking to you again. Take care. Go thank well. You. Stay well. Thank you so much. God bless you. Bye bye.